Welcome to The Look Back, the newest podcast hosted by former journalist turned media executive and host Keith Newman. The Look Back provides insights, tips, and maybe a few laughs during a free-flowing conversation on that roller coaster ride that reflects the past, present, and future of the Silicon Valley and tech economy. Hey, with me right now, we've got one of my best friends and old uh, colleagues, Marty Masner. At the top of the list, of course, is Master Sommelier, Grand Travel Guide, and an Amazing Grandpa. I know those are your top uh, top uh, responsibilities and, and top uh, credits today. But what I remember you, and I, I'm going to go through this because we're, we have a lot of shared history, is um, ex-LA Valley guy, CSUN grad, went into the ad game and, and during pre uh, post-Mad Men times, but it was a little crazy. You always had that famous story about working on some motorcycle account. I remember some of those stories too. <laughs> um, and then you transitioned over to the media game or the publishing game. And you worked in some publishing uh, for a while, what we call special interest or B2B or tech publishing that had all those different names. And then you did another zag back into the software side. And you worked at Ashton Tate, as I recall. I know I'm missing one or two other companies, but I'm hitting the high points, I hope. You worked at Ashton Tate, which in the 80s, that was one of the hottest companies. It was down in Southern California headquarters, and it was Ashton Tate and Lotus 123. Thank you. Look at that. He's got his Ashton Tate mug. And you were running marketing and had some amazing... Uh, success with that company. They were incredibly, uh, uh, an incredible growth machine. You worked there for a while, did some more in the software world. And then our, our famous intersection was when you um, were anointed uh, by Bill Ziff himself of Ziff Davis Media and uh, the rest of the team at Ziff Davis to become publisher of Mac User Magazine and A Plus Magazine, which I recall as the first special interest media properties in their tech family that were based on the West Coast. So you essentially became the head of West Coast and the publishing, and you and you made the questionable move of bringing me over um, on the marketing side and selling side. And all I know is that that was the start of a roller coaster ride that was quite the quite the e-ticket to use the Disneyland uh, analogy. How, how, how am I doing so far? That's a pretty good story, Keith. Yeah, pretty, pretty accurate. Uh, pretty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, uh, when you hear that, what do you think back? I mean, it's, uh, it's been an amazing, amazing time, career, so many highlights. Well, it's a series, you know, it starts off with a series of accidents. I originally got into the PC business by starting a magazine for car stereo dealers. Because oh. uh, I had handled a lot of that in the, uh, when I was in the ad business. And we needed a second, a second title to amortize the cost of our staff. And we were looking around and decided that there might be a future for this thing called personal computers. And uh, so we came up with the concept of a magazine called Computer Merchandising, which would teach the people working the retail floors how to sell these things. It'd be a sales training magazine. And uh, it's much better to be lucky than smart. Uh, Two of us from uh, both from the Valley uh, and the consumer electronics business got in our car and drove up to Silicon Valley and started knocking on doors. And by the time we finished, we had sold enough ads to launch our magazine and dropped the car stereo magazine. And I guess one of the, can I tell you the funny story about this? Of course, that's what we pay you for. 
So we're knocking on doors and uh, we got thrown out of a few places, but a couple of people talked to us. And we find ourselves talking to the, the VP of marketing who just started at Atari. And he's been brought aboard to launch the Atari 800, which was their version of the personal computer. And this is a guy, Rig Curry, one of the nicest, smartest guys in the business. Rig didn't have a lot of consumer marketing background, but he knew that he had a problem of trying to sell what was evolving from a game console to a computing console in the consumer electronics uh, uh, channel. And we walk in the door and say, hey, we're going to produce a magazine and give it to every retail salesperson in the business, at computer lands, at the consumer electronics stores. He said, great, sign me up. So um, he said, go talk to the agency. And we went to talk to the guys that it was Doyle Dane at the time. And they threw us out. They said, we want to see your BPA statement. And we said, no, 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 no. This is a business where, you know, six months earlier, it didn't exist. And you want to see something that takes three years to come up with. So uh, we went back to Rig and said, you know, your guys don't, here's the story. We don't have a BPA statement, so they don't want to talk to us. And even if they did, they wouldn't know what to put in there. Rig, how about if we do this? How about if we write a 12-page insert of how to sell the, the Atari 800? We'll run that as, a, as an insert in the magazine. He said, well, what would that cost? We had no idea. We didn't even have a rate card at the time. So we said, oh, $40,000. He said, I'll take two of them. <laughs> So he sent us back to the agency and we go back and there's a guy by the name of Andy Leonard. That's why I shouldn't say the name. And Andy says, no, what our policy is you don't have a, a BPA, it's audited circulation statement. We're not going to talk to you. So we call Rig. We go out, we find a payphone because they didn't have cell phones. We call Rig and tell him what's going on. He says, go back up in 10 minutes. We knocked on the door in 10 minutes and went into Andy's office and he said, well, here's the story. Rig said, unless I give you an insertion order immediately, the new agency will. So he cut us an insertion order from Doyle Dane for, you know, uh, two of these inserts in the first two issues. And we then marched that up and down the valley saying Doyle Dane says we're good. And we literally created a company based on that. Um, I went out and decided I was going to be editor of a personal computing trade magazine and bought an Apple II and taught myself how to use it. And that's how uh, I became a personal computing software expert. Boy, that is fantastic. And you know what, that really reminds me of one of your greatest strengths is you just find a way to get it done. You're always bringing a creative layer to it that takes a certain amount of push to get it like, you know, to the approval process, but you find a way. So here's the funny part, Keith. <laughs> Two months later, Rick Curry is not there because he had a conflict with a guy who was the chairman of Atari, Ray Kosser at the time. Okay. So we had this window where if we hadn't been there on that particular day, it probably never would have happened. Right. You, but you would have found a way anyways, I bet. I, I would like to think so. But uh, like I say, luck, luck plays a role. The right time at the right place, but you got to be lucky too. No question. Luck and timing. Luck and timing. And we could go over those examples. What's a fun memory you have from Ashton Tate days? You sipping out of that cup. I remember there was both the Ashton Tate from the D-Base time. And then when you took off and did framework with Robert... And then I think sold that back to Ashton Tate. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you were right there at the beginning of a industry that who knew where it would go. I mean, to people in software today, right? There's a, there are hundreds of thousands, everything is software now, right? With SaaS and cloud and um, digital transformation we have, and everything's fundamentally code. Um, low code, no code, big code, fat code. You're, and you were there, there were 20 companies, <laughs> it seems. 
Let you. Love is wild and woolly times. It, uh, yeah. you know, when I first got to Ashton Tate, there was a a lack of clarity as, as to who the customers were. Uh, Ashton Tate used to sell to the distributor, Soft Cell, uh, which was the dominant distributor in those days, Ingram and Soft Cell. And uh, people kept saying, those were our customers. And I kept saying, yeah, well, yeah, but who do they sell to? And how do they sell to them? Uh, and uh, we started a process of getting a much better understanding. But I, I was struck by, in those days, they were running as fast as they could to build software and ship it out the back door to, to soft sell. It didn't have a whole lot more questions. The checks came in from soft sell. Everybody was happy. Um, the, the beauty of it was soft sell would order 10,000 units and then break the boxes and send them out to the individual dealers, the resellers. Uh, and the Ashton Tate organization simply wasn't set up at the time to sell, you know, in the tens or hundreds or, or even single quantities to some of the smaller, smaller reseller organizations. That all happened over a period of two or three years. Do you remember those huge boxes and the cards you would try to get the user to fill out the reg cards and how important those were back in the day? Oh, that was the key to success because it was the upgrade model. You'd uh, every every three months or every six months you'd uh, you send them an upgrade and you you charge them for that or uh, major upgrades and it was uh, the, the the lifeblood of the business. Wow, forty years, everything's changed so dramatically, but some things are the same. You got to build a product that has, serves a value. People love it. The more they love it, the more they'll share with their friends. Right? Word of mouth drives everything. It still, it still drives a lot of the business today. So that that is true. Yeah. What else about those times, Marty, that uh, you reflect on a, a, per a particular moment in time, maybe where, you know, you got to a fork in the road and the decision had to be made, whether it was on the technical side or the business and science side? Um, you know, I think the interesting thing for me became when the company got so big, especially when it went public. Mm. Uh, I was there during the IPO and you can fly by the seat of your pants up until that time. But once you got to the point where you were a public company, you had to have much more discipline. Uh, it, it became much more important to put processes in place and to have some product planning and be able to, to meet demand and be able to have forecasts for both the street and for your distributors. And it became much more systematized uh, yeah. at that point. And to a certain degree, some of the fun went away. I remember going to Comdex in 82 and you could cover most of the show floor in about 45 minutes and <laughs> go shake Bill Gates' hand and chat with him in his booth. And Steve Jobs came over to our place and said hi. And it was a, a very different world at that point, much more informal. Um, <laughs> and then we got to play over on the, at the publishing side when you got to run a Mac user and A+. How did that come about? What did you think about that opportunity and, and that challenge at the time? Well, I had been at Ashton Tate for four years and I uh, had moved with my family to Northern California and Ashton Tate was still in Southern California and they didn't really have a role for a senior marketing executive uh, remotely at that time. We didn't have the advantage of the internet. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to, to go off and do my own, to do something different. And it was interesting because I was uh, contacted by some friends at Ziff who I had known for years uh, because I had been buying Ziff magazines in the special interest like cycling and, and uh, the, the stereo review. Um, and they asked me if I'd be interested in working with them. And I, I said, I'd love to hear more. I went through a whole process and I was convinced I was going to be the West coast associate publisher of PC magazine. <laughs> That's what I thought I was being recruited for. <laughs> Well, I had all these wonderful answers and, and perspectives on the PC business and who the major players were and what their strategies were. 
little did I know that uh, they were recruiting me to run Mac, the Mac user, which were in the, they were in the process of buying. So it came as quite a shock to me when I, uh, when I discovered that's what the- Did they know that the whole time or, or were they possibly thinking about you for, the, for PC Magazine or maybe this new thing? No, it was from day one. It was, uh, they oh. wanted somebody to, to run, you know, the Apple side of the house on the West Coast. Isn't that great? With A plus and uh, Mac user. And uh, they knew they, they wanted it to be on the West Coast because <coughs> that's where Apple was. But, you know, Mac user, I mean, let's kind of go back into our, our nostalgic moments here was such a funky ragtag group um, that became known as, I guess you would call, be before Zip. Well, how would you describe Mac user? Well, they were the Apple rebels. They were, they were almost the anti-Apple. Uh, and part of that was because the founder of Mac user, the late Felix Dennis, had insulted the Apple people uh, <laughs> quite, quite vigorously when he was uh, running Mac user UK. And they had a very difficult relationship. So a Mac user actually never carried a page of advertising from Apple. Um, and even worse, they wouldn't put us in the box with the registration cards to get a free subscription to, to build Maybe circulation. An Apple computer, right? So we right. Were, I mean, Mac user was always in the second position. And that actually probably tore up Felix a little bit, which, you know, it was a catalyst for his, uh, his instigation. I, it, it was, it was. And it, one of the proudest days of his life is when, when Mac user passed uh, Mac World in circulation and ad pages. He, uh, he was uh, very, very happy about that, even though he was no longer in, directly involved in the magazine. He sent right. me a very fine bottle of wine. So, uh, No, I remember that. And I also, I, I remember the great uh, energy and culture that got established on the editorial side and the marketing and sales side and putting those folks together. There was such passion around well, there is still today. I mean, the zealots around the Macintosh and the Apple culture, um, but they wanted the best. They they wanted to write the best reviews, and um, and then yeah, and then from a, a marketing sales side, to overcome the dominant player on that side, Mac World was quite an accomplishment. You have to be kind of proud looking back at that how that was how that was architected. Oh, it was an incredible battle. It was uh, one of the highlights of my life. Uh, uh, one, I had the support of the Ziff organization, but we took Ziffism to a, to a new level. Yeah. You know, Ziff was also all about special interest, really knowing your industry, paying back by giving people research and insights on how the industry really worked. And as you know, we took that to the next level with a Mac user marketing conference, where we literally had a three-day series of focus groups with the buyers of Macintosh products, and then invited the advertisers, the industry, to come in and listen to how their, how their customers wanted to be sold to. And we videotaped that and used that as a tool. I mean, it, we literally helped people write marketing plans on the spot. Yeah. Uh, and it became an incredibly powerful weapon that our friends at Macworld never even, even conceived existed. It was a lot of fun to be part of that. So the, it was the Mac user marketing conference. There was the, obviously the Macworld trade shows that we all attended. And those, became, those were so fundamental, both the Boston event and the San Francisco event. Um, I also know you were never shy about packing the bag and going to visit, you know, obviously the big clients, but the smaller ones too. And you took such passion and energy into all those meetings with the littlest guys, you kind of roll up your sleeves, just like you said, and being a servant to the, to the customer base, to the market. Well, you know, I was a software publishing marketing person. So it, it, it was second nature to me. 
particularly yep. given the resources I had to some of these guys, you know, we, we would go to sell them some ads and the question, he would look at me and say, you know, it's either buying this ad or buying my wife a new car. What do I do <laughs> yeah, to drive the kids to school? Uh, well, it was a cottage industry of sorts too. I mean, there was a the top tier that were big, but then there was everybody else, right? Yeah. Tell me a funny yeah. story. Give me a story about uh, one of your uh, client days, your relationships, and you built so many great uh, stories over the time. And it, it, it speaks to, you know, how to really build a partnership. Well, you know, there were a number of them. I guess, uh, I guess one of the ones that I enjoyed the most was with Aldis, which used to be one of the premier desktop publishing uh, products. Uh, a guy by the name of Mike Solomon was uh, their VP of marketing and just a really, really nice guy, incredibly smart. Yep. Turns out that our paths, uh, Mike and I, uh, Mike's paths had crossed in the consumer electronics business. He was a sales representative. He ran a sales rep firm for one of my clients on the advertising side. And I was out beating the bushes with the, uh, with the client and learning about what the channel wanted in those days and met Mike and got his input and developed a relationship there. So when he went to Aldous as their VP of marketing and really helped build that company, I mean, he was, he along with uh, two or three of the other people were, were just absolute keys in making that company become the dominant player there. And just a lot of fun reconnecting and watching the transition from con consumer electronics marketing and sales to the personal computer business. Um, it's a great example. And I haven't thought of PageMaker in a long time, but as I uh, recall, they were acquired by Adobe and Adobe is still, you know, an, uh, maybe may one of the prime examples of, of how, to, how to build a successful company over time because they've been around for 40 years now. It has, and it's got, you know, a franchise that, uh, that PageMaker actually built for them, even though they evolved to Acrobat or the Carousel product. But, uh, and many things, I wonder if it was still Aldous, if they would have developed WordPress and other, other products or programs like that. You know, I think they would have. I think they had that in their DNA. They were always looking, always talking to customers, always getting that input. And that's part of, part of what I think made some of the earlier companies so successful. Um, they looked at the research. They, 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 did, they did the work, but they had the instincts. They could connect the dots as to where the business was going to be 12 months, 18 months, 24 months down the road. Um, I took a shot at MBAs, and I have to be careful because my son-in-law is an MBA and some of my best friends are MBAs. <laughs> but MBAs come in, in different flavors. And the flavor that started to take over the industry were what I call the regurgitators. These were people who had studied the, the models, you know, the case history models uh, that Harvard made famous. And they could tell you exactly what was going to happen as long as you could give them a background of what had happened. Yeah. But in the computer business, you know, you couldn't have any idea that Windows was going to be successful based on what the, what the, the, the past history was. <coughs> That's funny. You know, <laughs> I, uh, I guess we call them consultants now, but the industry <coughs> has changed a lot. Um, but, you know, the new wave of, of software pioneers, I think, have a little bit of the 1980s, early 90s kind of a flair as CEOs very focused on a specific problem or solution, maybe less, less coming out of, out of graduate schools. Well, I think they have this vision of the future and they're able to create things that don't exist. You know, one of my most vivid memories is having this vociferous argument with my boss, the CEO of a software company yeah. uh, about Windows. Uh, 
Windows had just been introduced and having come out of the Mac environment at Mac user, I knew that that was the future of, of computing. It would, might take two years or three years or four years, but that was what the future was. And he kept telling me to prove it, that the, you know, the, he thought DOS was going to be around forever. <laughs> and in fact, he raised a bunch of money and used it all to buy a DOS presentation program when Windows 3.1 was introduced. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And, you know, very nice guy, very smart guy, have nothing but, but good things to say about him as a person. But he was one of these MBAs who, uh, unless you could prove it, um, you know, with, with real research, he just wasn't going to believe it. And uh, OK, I want to change the topic because I don't want you in trouble with your son-in-law. And I know you have another special connection at Microsoft, too. So we don't want to get into too much trouble. Tell me about maybe one of your favorite lessons um, that you that you impart on young entrepreneurs, whether they're in the software game or media game that you learned over time. Again, I take a lot of lessons from you. I call you my mentor but and, and, and close friend. But I mean, I learned so much working for you. But what's one of the top things you like to impart? One of the things that, that I always tell people is, is when you start a business, when you start a, a project, figure what, what success is going to look like. Uh, and when you start a software company, you've got to figure out, are you going to take it public? Are you going to sell it to somebody? And if so, who are you going to sell it to? Yeah. So too many people start things uh, based on a one-dimensional view and uh, don't have a, a longer-term vision, a, a, a creative vision of what what the end goal looks like. Uh, and with that end goal in mind, to make course corrections on a very, very frequent basis. So you don't lock yourself into anything, but you always have at any given point in time an end goal. And that can change. Uh, but it's hard to do when you're running a business, particularly a startup. Uh, you're running so hard and so fast, but sometimes you get to a point that's no longer valid or no longer meaningful um, because you haven't popped your head up to see what the world is looks like on that particular day. Right. You may start off fixing a problem or trying to adjust to some scenario in a market, but you're building a company. You're not just fixing a problem. So you have to map out that whole journey and figure out point A, B, C, all the way to the end. And understanding you got to be flexible too. That and, and just continuing to keep your head up above the waters. Um, when I look at the companies that I've, I've looked at as a potential investor or as an advisor, right. one of the huge pitfalls is they're so focused on what they're doing on meeting a particular goal that they've been set that they don't look around to see whether the conditions have changed and our competitors announce something similar or you know, understanding what their environment is. And in this business that we're in, as you know, it changes so dramatically and so rapidly that is one of the biggest traps uh, around there. Microsoft's a great case study of how they have gone to the top, to the bottom, you know, in terms of market leadership and dominance, right. um, when you get ahead of a curve and you get fall behind a curve um, and how fortunes can change. Um, so a thought too, Marty, is this is called the look back and we've done a fun job both on the nostalgic side and a little bit of historical side. What's a, what's a decision you made that you might have changed a little bit, if not completely redone or goes, man, I shouldn't have done, never should have done that. And it could be, be on a strategic level, right? Or a career level or something. Does anything come to mind as I, as I pop your uh, 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 memory with, with some of those questions? Oh yeah. It's, it's the one I have nightmares about. <laughs> what's that? So 
I, I was lucky enough to be a co-founder of the company that built Framework, which was the first true real integrated product for the IBM PC with Robert Carr, who was my co-founder and technical genius. Yeah, explain for a second what Framework did, if you don't mind. Sure, so Framework uh, basically set up a desktop environment with multiple windows in the DOS environment before there was Windows. Uh, back before Windows, getting a piece of data, a table from VisiCalc or 123 into the word processing program was an almost impossible task. And it was never live. You know, you would plant something in there and if something would change, you'd have to go back and, and, and literally rewrite the word processing document. Right. So Framework had multiple windows opened on a desktop. It, it was born out of the same environment that the Macintosh was born out of, out of Xerox Park, which is where Robert worked. But we had it working on, on the IBM 8086 environment, uh, in a character environment. And it was a really brilliant concept, but it was really slow. And we, we required 256 kilobytes of, 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 of main memory. I mean, it was, it was almost a laugh at the time when, when the machines were coming with 64. So it was a big jump. What we didn't, what I didn't realize was that memory prices were falling so rapidly that if we had not rushed that program and held it back another nine months, 12 months, we could have made it work in much, uh, memory would have been much cheaper, processing speeds would have been much faster, and it would have, been, it would have done a much better launch. But we were scared to death that Lotus, which was about to announce Symphony, which was its, its integrated product, which turned out to be a terrible product, uh, <laughs> We had to get to market to, to compete with them. If we had any idea of how terrible Symphony was, because it, it totally disappeared. It was just... So know your competition, find a mole, and then track your commodity prices on the chip layer. Uh, well, even <laughs> then, it, it, you know, I, I had heard of Moore's Law, but it, yeah. was, it was hard to believe that yeah. things were actually moving that fast. That's if right. we had held that product off for nine more months, it would have made a dramatic difference. And we went on to sell a quarter billion dollars with it. So it was yeah. not like an in inconsequential product over the 10 years that it was in, in the market. So, All right. Well, I got another one for you. Um, so if you're entering the job market out of Cal State Northridge today, like, by the way, my nephew is uh, in a few months, <laughs> what, would, what would a young Marty be doing today? What would you go into? Because you know what? That special interest publishing industry is not quite the same. And, and the ad agency business is still around, but it's very, very much different. Would those still have your interest or would you be into something else? No, I would. Uh, I would. I think if it were me coming out of college today, uh, looking around, I think there are two areas that would really be interesting. I think number one is clearly uh, Internet publishing, uh, whether it's blogs, whether it's podcasts. It's tying into to giving people information in the format they wanted. Mm -hmm. And that format is mobile-based, it's desktop-based, it's visual. Uh, and I think people want a level of granularity. Uh, I mean, you don't want to simply get a travel log of Hawaii. You want to know where are the best snorkeling spots on a particular island. So you can really dig down and drill into it. And I think there's great opportunities to aggregate information there from people who have that information. Um, on a more, more formal note, uh, I would look to get aboard with companies who are involved with managing data, uh, get entry-level jobs, whether it's in the call, whatever it takes to get aboard. Yeah. Um, you know, the first 
30 or 40 years of this business were, were about creating data. We've now created so much stuff that we're overwhelmed with it. And the real challenge now is managing it and finding it and organizing it. Right, and structured so we can use it for things like machine learning, AI, and those applications as Just well. Just all, all, you know, you look at it, this, the world of big data, that's where the future is. It's, I, think it's, so too. I think it's gonna be a huge revolution powered by AI. What about things like AR, VR? Do those interest you or is that a little, uh, a little scary too? No, I think I think virtual reality is is you know we're in the early early stages of it, and it's yeah. it's directly tied to processing power and memory. Um, when you look at the the capability of chips today, of uh, the Nvidia chips, and even of, of the PCs, uh, uh, latest model Intel uh, uh, processor, you know from Dell, with an Nvidia uh, graphics processor, can do some pretty impressive VR. But twelve months from now, eighteen months from now, when we get some of these ARM chips. Um, it's going to have a profound implication on everything we do. I mean, you, you talk about what the, what Satya says at, at Microsoft. That's his biggest area of growth. I think he's absolutely on target with that. And I think the ripple effects on the world are going to be enormous. Yeah. I, I know we've skirted over the, the second part of your career, the or your third quarter, but uh, I know the time I spent with you was with so many great uh, experience and lessons. We only touched on a couple. But it's clear why you had to take a little break to go open a winery also. Uh, go start your winery after. <laughs> you had to uh, find a way to calm down after all that. Just, it was a nonstop roller. It was a, a very fast-paced roller coaster, that's for sure. Well, there are very few areas of the software business where you can take your shotgun and scare away people. So, But you can do that in the vineyard and scare the birds away. So it, uh, it was very satisfying. That's fantastic. Um, anything else you want to... Uh, you want to throw out, we touched on, on so many great stories, but also lessons, things like that as I, we could go on forever, of course, but, uh, uh, you know, just for, for this recording, this uh, podcast to share with our friends, any fun stories you want to bring up? Uh, you know, I just want to re reiterate the, the, the key concept for me has always been talking to people and trying to get to, trying to understand the process of how things work. You know, how, are, how are products bought and sold? Uh, what are the stages that a buyer goes through? Um, where do they get the information at each of those stages? And unless you can really have a, a feel for that, it's not just reading the quantitative research, which you have to do. Yeah. But you have to have a, a qualitative feel and then connect the dots so you can be there ahead of where the market's going to be. Um, you've got to be anticipate the stuff. And that, that to me is, is the real key. If you look at the successful people in this business, it's those people who've been able to look at information and then make a leap uh, to where the world might be X months, X, X you know, days ahead. You know, when, when Elon Musk said he was going to land a booster on a barge in the ocean, most of the people in the aerospace business thought he was a complete loony. Well, they thought he was a loony to start with. He's, you know, quite a character. Right. But the concept of doing that was so unbelievable to them. They, they, they couldn't even conceive of something like that. Yeah. But this guy, because he understands where things are going, knew that the processing power would be there to do that. And it's all processing power tied to the engines and making, you know, minute micro corrections. And when he did it, I was just sitting there just stunned. You know. Well, you've had the you've been in the catbird seat and had to go um, uh, had the pleasure of visiting and, and seeing a lot of these visionaries who knew how to connect those dots. But you've been very consistent in your focus because I remember 
you sharing those kinds of words of wisdom with me years ago when we were together on the publishing side and really encouraged me to do those things. And I hear a little bit of my counsel to startups using a lot of your words. I, I have for, since uh, since uh, those days. So I, I can't thank you enough. It's been a, a super fun look back with you, Marty. Thank you, Keith. Thanks for the opportunity and best of luck to you on the on the uh, podcast. Uh, uh, I, get, break I, up. I guess I'm moving into some of this media stuff with you. I'm going to bring you back along and we'll go have some fun. Do me a favor, stay safe and give my love to Ruth and the kids and the, and the grandkids. Oh my gosh, you can go on forever, but uh, let's get through this, you know, COVID phase. And uh, by the way, have you got your shots? I'm fully vaccinated and looking forward to doing, uh, sharing some wine with you in the backyard in the very near future. Okay, we keep talking about it. Let's do it soon, okay? Okay, Keith, take care. Thanks, Marty. Thanks for listening to The Look Back. We do appreciate your support. Welcome any feedback and would love it if you would subscribe to this podcast and even consider sharing it with some of your friends. For more information and other cool info, check us out at newmanmediastudios.com.